So I don't know why, but I was thinking about this earlier this week, and I came up with some alternate universe Lizzie Bordens, and I want you guys to tell me which one is your favorite, okay? <laughs> so we obviously have Lizzie Borden, just the OG, mm. the, the uh, accused murderer. Lizzie Borden Prime. Then we have Quizzy Borden, who is an elementary school teacher who gives lots of tests. We also have Busy Borden, who's an overwhelmed secretary for a Fortune 500 company. Just and, constantly being like, I can't be sick right now. I just can't be sick right now. <laughs> it's like the Family Guy skit where it's like, I'm so busy with work, I can't talk to you and fall in love. I'm, I'm too busy to even be busy. <laughs> and then we have Dizzy Borden, who's a free-spinning pole dancer. She spins my head right round, right round. So out I actually of those, prefer Rizzy Borden. Oh, that's a good one. I was trying to go through the alphabet and figure out which ones actually worked. <laughs> Rizzy was right there. I can't it was. I just not up with the lingo as much as Mark is. I guess I oh, can't keep wow. up with those those kids' terms. Yeah, yeah. Mark is known for his slang. It's just Rizzy. <laughs> I'm just imagining Rizzy Borden like doing a heel spin, giving finger guns, and then like. Putting on shit. How do you think she got out of the charges? It was that, yeah. it was that Riz. <laughs> that was the she, one time she, had, she talked. Yeah. yeah. She had Riz in the courtroom. That's right. She beat the allegations. Uh, <laughs> sir, we find her not guilty because Riz. Because fierce. <laughs> Coming from a bunch of like elderly white men. <laughs> Who, in my mind, are still wearing the wigs, even though I know this is way oh, past absolutely. that. absolutely. Like the white powdered wigs for judges. Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Gems of History podcast, the finale. The final countdown is here. It's at zero. I put the music in, but I'm sure we the last episode we ever do, then we get copyright suit. So I'm not going to do that. That would be funny. I'm not going to lie to you. That would be a little <laughs> what a way to go. We lose all of the profits we made from this podcast. <laughs> I'm your host, Jacob Shop. That was Evan Roosh. You just heard speaking, my co-host. And with us again this week, we have Mark Steinbrenner. I'm here, and it feels like the end of a chapter of life, kind of. It kind of is, honestly. especially for you guys, but it's yeah. it's it's a weird feeling. It is. It's gonna be weird not having to like text you to plan the date we're t- recording, or like worry about what we're covering that week or anything like right, that. Or getting a text from me being like, like you mentioned, what are we doing again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like. Did we set a date for recording? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes. honestly, it's weird. Just so, like an entire night, just wow. Yeah, like, like what? Are we, how are we even going to get together anymore? Time? Like, what are we going to do together anymore? We'll we'll find something. I, I don't know, man. We can't golf anymore. It's too cold for the that. The pod was the only thing keeping their friendship <laughs> together. After this, it, could, yeah. it entirely collapsed. By the time of Evan's wedding, we just loathe each other. Wow. <laughs> Oh, I don't like that alternate universe. (laughs) (laughs) But as you guys know, we are covering Lizzie Borden. This is part two of our two-part series. If you haven't listened to part one, we cover the story and go through some of the details and background information. So if you want to listen to that, this week we are going to be going through the trial and more of the nitty-gritty details so that we can kind of pin down how Lizzie Borden eventually gets acquitted of the murder of her father and stepmother. We have a lot to get through today, so I'm I'm not even going to ask you guys how you're doing because I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's crazy if you haven't listened to part one, like what are you doing here? But during part one, we left it at a point where I think all three of us audibly said she's 100% guilty. Like, how did this, how did she get acquitted? So diving into it today, I think will be really, really fun. So Mark, before we do get into it, 
I asked you to come up with a working theory that you want that you would bring into the episode at the beginning and see how it changes by the end. Mm. Do you have one? I currently? do. Are we doing a recap at all? Or are we just going into it? I'm going to do a little bit of a recap. Okay, let's do the recap first. Okay. So short recap of what we talked about last week. We started the coverage on the Lizzie Borden case by explaining the backdrop for the event. We described how Fall River was a thriving town in Massachusetts at the time, and the Bordens were a well-known, semi-prominent family within that community. The Borden home was not one of affection. Rather, it was a case of five mostly independent people living in the same house. Lizzie and Emma were homebodies past the marrying age of the day, so they occupied the family home along with their father and stepmother, despite the fact that the home was modest even for a middle-class family. The girls' lives were mundane, to say the least. Lizzie occupied herself with charitable works in town to fill time, but otherwise milled about and gossiped with friends that she had. On August 4th, 1892, Andrew and Abby Borden were brutally killed by an unknown entity in their own home in the middle of the day. Lizzie and the household maid Bridget were the only two home at the time of the crime, making them the focus of the investigation. And after enough time, the police could only see one option to move the investigation forward, and that was to question and eventually arrest Lizzie Borden. Her alibi was questionable, and she was the only person that the police could see with a means and an opportunity to commit the crime. After a preliminary trial, a judge found enough of a probable cause to have her officially indicted, which is where we are now. Now, Mark, what do you say is your working theory? What say you? What say you? <laughs> okay, okay. Can you talk a little bit more about the man quick who slept over at their house recently? John Morse? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, John Morse was Lizzie's uncle. He showed up on Wednesday. The murders happened on Thursday. Yeah. So, he showed up in, I believe, like the afternoon on Wednesday. He didn't see Lizzie the entire day Wednesday because she was out. Uh, when he got home that night, he, or when he got home, she wasn't home. And then he heard her come home later, saw that her door was locked. He woke up, got breakfast or ate breakfast with the parents, and then left, went into town to visit relatives in Fall River, and then came back in the afternoon after the crimes had already been committed. What is his relation to the family? So he is the brother of Andrew's first wife. So he's brother-in-law by first marriage. Not... Not Abby Borden, but Sarah Borden. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I got a few theories here. If you really want to try and sell the fact that Lizzie was not guilty, then you, then you can kind of start to work around some things and just give her the benefit of the doubt. It all predicates on Lizzie being kind of slow and off, which I think her upbringing fundamentally would kind of make her off already she just sounds a little uneasy to me um the pictures also don't do her justice <laughs> yeah if she, i'm gonna be a mean girl for the last episode <laughs> yeah. she's just a plain looking woman yeah okay i got two theories on on what could have occurred one is since lizzie's sister already did not like the parents okay yep she was also considered to be out of town or not not around right she was out out of town for two weeks at the time yeah 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 yeah. what if she snuck back into the house and wasn't out of town on that day okay and she killed the parents knowing she had an alibi that she was not there and that kind of now i don't know if she intended to set up lizzie since they seem to be close 
or Lizzie getting set up was unintentional or she knew that the law would prove out that maybe Lizzie didn't do it because of maybe what Lizzie's alibis were going to be. I'm not sure. But I have a theory that her sister could have pulled it off given she knows the house so well. She would have known things about the schedule of the family where they might have been at the time. She could have been stalking her father to know that he was going to come back to the house at that point in time. Or maybe he was an unintentional thing. Maybe she was going to just kill the mother-in-law, but he was home and maybe she she decided to take both of them out in order to get the wealth. She would have been next in line, in theory, to receive that wealth. So it came down to the money aspect of things. And then finally, the other possibility is the other person who knew the house and where they were at would have been their servant. Bridget. Bridget. We don't know for a fact, but we can kind of gather that it's possible Bridget was not always, maybe let's just say, treated with the most respect. Maybe she was kind of... definitely wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe there were some things that happened where she would have some grudges about the situation. Maybe she knew she could probably get away with the murders, with Lizzie being the most likely suspect. So maybe she... Because there's some weird things with the servant not hearing anything, too. In the whole situation. She, well, well, she's washing the windows, too. She was, she was also, looking inside. She was also, for a point in time, talking to a neighbor. Yeah. So she just, like, was, like, not doing her work for a short period of time yeah. and also talking to other people. And so. keep in mind, like, I, well, I'm not, based on the how the murders happened, it doesn't sound like they happened super quick. It kind of sounds like they stayed there for a little bit. But because it, it's so clear, unless the person's just a genius who did this, that there was emotion involved with the murders based on the crime scene you would think it has to be someone still close to the family um so the the thing that you have to decide is did the break-in that happened a few months earlier is that related at all and if it is then it kind of makes what i'm saying a little more suspect like why did this happen but i think it's got to deal with their wealth in some capacity along with emotions so that's why i think it's either the other sister I was going to say Morse if he was in the will at all would make a ton of sense if he did the murders. But because he's a he's like dis a kind of a distant relative, I'm not sure that he would have been in on the money at all. No, he wasn't. So and he had like his alibi out of everyone in the story was the tightest. Yeah. So I feel like he's probably safe, but I don't think the Lizzie sister's safe and I don't think the servant is safe. Uh, I think I think they could possibly be culpable but almost all of it is predicated on lizzie not being we'll just say like the brightest light bulb Mm -hmm. that there is okay sure evan is there anything that you'd like to add before we get into the trial i mean i really think a lot of it is dependent on bridget like more than anything her testimony throughout the case it's very interesting because it doesn't really hurt Lizzie, but it also doesn't like help Lizzie. Like it's completely perfectly neutral, it seems like. And in addition, Bridget, I believe at one point even heard like she did like hear a thing, like a thud. I don't believe I excuse me, I don't recall the actual noise that she supposedly heard, but she heard something. So went to the stairs and assumed it was Lizzie. And then like kind of went about what she was doing. Yeah, so she and Lizzie both kind of say like ad they kind of flip-flop back and forth between mm-hmm. hearing something and not, depending on who the witness was that is testifying about it. But Lizzie, at one point, says she heard a thud out when she's in the barn. She also said she heard, like, a metal scraping noise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Bridget kind of says, like, I, she either didn't hear anything or she heard, like, a noise but didn't really think it was anything serious. Or she was talking to the neighbor and just didn't hear anything. Right. So, yeah, it 
that part's weird. It's also technically possible that something was like coordinated mm-hmm. between more than one person. Now, I doubt it because I feel like that's way easier for someone to accidentally say something wrong. Right. But it's not like Lizzie was super clean in her responses anyway. So it could be it could have been multiple people involved in theory. But I, I just feel like it's strange for them to for these such mundane people to be killed by someone outside who has ties to potentially getting involved with the money seems somewhat unlikely to me. Like, I don't think I don't think that dude was at work and really ticked someone off he's like i'm killing that dude and i'm killing his wife too i mean it's possible but the only real lead that they had based on that was that lizzie and someone else reported seeing and lizzie reported hearing her dad talking to a man on the front steps of the house like that the week before about a property dispute and the guy seemed pretty frustrated because Andrew wouldn't sell him a property because he didn't think it was worth selling to him because he didn't think it was a good investment. Mm-hmm. So that was like one thing that people brought up that never really like no one knew who this guy was or where to find him. Sure. So they just couldn't follow it. The yeah. Lead. But that was the only point like that really pr- pointed to anyone else who ha- would have had an argument about why they would want to kill him. But then again, why would you kill Abby? If if you're just right. mad at Andrew, you yeah. know, it, stuff like that. But okay, so we have a couple working theories going into it. So I'll ask you at the end if your opinion has changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After her preliminary hearing, Lizzie was sent back to Bristol County Jail in Taunton. This was uh, a bit of a privilege for Lizzie, considering that the jail was more closely related to a well-kept private school than it was to other jails at the time. It was just a nicer facility. The grounds was well-kept. I don't know. If I'm 32, I'm getting sent back to a private school. I think that's still jail. <laughs> in her no, case. upgrade, dude. The plumbing actually worked. Yeah, yeah honestly. That's right. They only had one yeah. toilet. <laughs> In addition to the establishment itself being more accommodating, so were those in charge when it came to their most high-profile inmate. The matron of the jail, a woman named Mrs. Wright, gave Lizzie one of her own pillows to replace the one that was in every other cell, and she permitted a few plants and some candy, just some luxuries that Lizzie had in her cell compared to some of the other prisoners who maybe didn't have that. Not to mention the conjugal visits or whatever. No. Oh, boy. <laughs> she was a spinster. Oh, she, my God. A spinster. Maybe she, this one was Rizzy. Wow. <laughs> this was Rizzy Barden. <laughs> Lizzie even made friends with a male prison cat named Daisy, which is an interesting way, interesting name for a male cat, Daisy. (laughs) Uh, But Daisy kept her company during her confinement. Her meals consisted of bread and coffee for breakfast. Lunch was corned beef twice a week, corned beef hash twice a week, soup twice a week, and cod and potatoes on the final day of the week, which sounds like better meals than I make myself at home. I was going to say, it's not a bad situation. That reminds me of The Office. Like, oh, I would love prison. <laughs> Can you imagine Three if they square and a only? square. Yep. What if she had to eat only swordfish? That's her punishment. <laughs> yeah. cold mutton soup. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Cold uh, mutton. For supper, she got tea and bread. But all the prisoners did have the option to bring in outside food as long as they paid for it, which Lizzie was naturally able to do given her considerable resources. So she ordered from the nearby hotel that had like one of the best restaurants in town quite often. Can you imagine being in jail and some, one of the inmates is just ordering in like Outback Steakhouse? Like like, prime rib. Prime rib, yeah, while you're just having gruel. You're, you're getting like those cinnamon rolls from Texas Roadhouse. 
I think I would kill someone in prison for one of those, to be quite frank. <laughs> Evan's shanking people over cinnamon, over cinnamon rolls. rolls. I love it. Just give me the cinnamon butter. <laughs> and then don't have to have any problems. So the rights who were in charge of this prison made sure to energetically defend Lizzie's privacy while she awaited her trial, making it a point to emphasize to reporters that Lizzie wasn't convicted yet and therefore shouldn't be punished before it's due, which on their part is a good call. But while she spent time being afforded more luxuries than her fellow prisoners, the legal system continued their trek towards a trial. On December 2nd, 1892, a grand jury officially indicted Lizzie Andrew Borden of three charges. One was for the murder of Andrew. One was for the murder of Abby. And the third was for the murder of both Andrew and Abby together. Sure. Which is an interesting way to do it. I guess that's not technically double jeopardy. Close. Close, but I guess technically not. Nah. Andrew Jennings, the Borden family lawyer, knew that he was going to need some help in this trial. So in addition to recruiting Boston lawyer Melvin Adams, who I mentioned last episode, he also enlisted the help of former Massachusetts governor George Robinson. In effect, these three were the late 19th century legal dream team. Just for reference on how much they cost, Jennings and Adams were rumored to have charged $15,000 each, and Robinson charged $25,000. So the Borans are basically the Kardashians of... It's Yeah, it's pretty much like the O.J. Simpson trial, or like, yeah. That's a great comparison. Whoever can afford to get this legal team has a good shot. That's a crazy, crazy legal team. No wonder she got off. Right. A former governor. Yeah, exactly. Not a bad one to have in your corner. I'm going to try and see how much that would be in money today. Do you think that this trial is very comparison to that, OJ Simpson? Imagine, in terms of like publication coverage. I would think, This yeah. is wild, dude. Somebody kills their parents, yeah. then uses their fortune to get Duke. the best lawyers to <laughs> yeah. get off of the murder. That's naughty so that's pretty gangster that's crazy (laughs) if those numbers are accurate and it was fifty five thousand dollars total for these three it's around two million dollars that she spent on her defense team in today's money she's probably very thankful that uh her dad was very frugal and saved money and i mean she had her own like considerable resources on her own so like i think she probably could have paid for this all by herself Mm -hmm. but that was still daddy's money oh yeah exactly While things moved along, rumors began to spread throughout the public about Lizzie Borden. In one sensational example of how reporting twisted a story, a star crime reporter for the Boston Globe named Henry Tricky purchased what he thought was the government's case on Lizzie Borden from a private detective named Edwin McHenry for $500. Tricky, huh? It's a little tricky story. He's always flipping a coin. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it's basically an anime character. Yeah. (laughs) Was like shifty, also his accomplice. That was was his Padawan. His assistant. Uh, So, yeah, this guy purchased what he thought was the government's case file on the trial from a private detective who was helping the Fall River Police Department for $500. This guy's flipping a coin. He's always got his knee up on the wall with his back, you know, dogging him (laughs) on. He's he's got a white shirt with the sleeves rolled. He's the prototype of a greaser. (laughs) Yeah, perfect. Got any scoops for me? (laughs) The scoops, yeah. (laughs) He's got a little news cap boy next to him. So the story that ran in the publication told that Lizzie had a secret she was keeping, which her father found out, prompting the murders. 
The secret claimed that Lizzie was pregnant and that her father had found out, threatening to kick her out of the house if she didn't tell him who the father was. If she breathes, she's... (laughs) (laughs) In response, Lizzie then made plans to kill her parents because they threatened to kick her out of the house. This article even listed names of 25 supposed prosecution witnesses, some of whom claimed to have seen Lizzie killing her stepmother in a hooded cloak. A hooded cloak? (laughs) She had a big sigh, like scythe, and was... (laughs) She was death. Yeah. So the story was an obvious fake, but the paper feared competition from other papers getting the story first, so they published it without verifying the contents. Within 10 hours of the publication, they had found out that the story was fake. So Our media really hasn't changed. No, oh, no. They just kind of went with the first thing that they got. And yeah. this is the prime for like yellow journalism starting off and twisting stories for sensation. So Boston Globe quickly retracted the story and offered an apology to Lizzie Borden, but that wasn't the end of the story. Henry Tricky, on his part, wanted to confront Edwin McHenry about the betrayal, so he declared that he would find him and that there would be a, quote, funeral in Providence if he ever laid eyes on him, end quote. But within two months, it was Henry Tricky who ended up dead, not Edwin McHenry. Tricky fled to Canada to escape any repercussions from the fake story, and not long after, he ended up being run over by a train thus ending what was no, now known as the Tricky Henry Affair. Tricky Mick Henry Affair. There really was a side quest or like a side story. Too. Yep. And it was like a pretty suspicious death. Like there's a lot of people who are like, I don't even think that was him. Like, there's not even a train track in the how town. How did he fall on the track? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just like a mobile train. There's <laughs> <laughs> the toy train chug a chug yeah, there is weird offshoot stories that are connected to this. Like, there was another murder in Fall River by Axe, too, in the interim time, but it was found that it was just, like, this insane guy. So there's a lot of side quests that kind of branch off. But not all the updates were negative. One more possibility. Okay. It could be. This is a crazy chance, but... The break-in originally could have been the same person who did the murders, and it could have it could have simply been a serial killer type of situation. Now that's mm-hmm. a long shot, but maybe this person just picked those people to to hack and slash. It's possible. It could be. I mean, like there's a book called The Man on the Train. It written, I believe, written by Bill James, who's a true crime writer, and he tries to tie together a bunch of axe murders. Like we talked about the Hinterkaifeck murder, which happened in Germany, was never solved. The Velisca axe murders. He tries to tie these all together as one guy who just traveled by train to different various hubs, and then eventually ended up in Europe at some point. So, like things like that could be linked to this. And there's just like so many people running around killing people with axes that maybe that was connected to it somehow. Because there is a I would assume a train hub nearby. So I don't know, maybe, but I mean, these are all like with no other information. These are all like plausible theories, you know? So during the interim, the investigation looked into the possible insanity of Lizzie Borden, asking contemporary experts like former McLean asylum superintendent, Dr. Jelly to give his (laughs) thoughts on her mental state. What are these names? I told you, man, there's a lot of fun names in this one. Tricky jelly. Who is his nurse assistant, peanut butter. No, it was Mrs. Jam. And they work for the Uncrustables company. (laughs) (laughs) So all of these contemporary experts declined the prosecution's idea that Lizzie Borden was insane. 
Some of Lizzie's friends came forward as well and refuted the notions of Lizzie being cold and unemotional, stating that she was an even-tempered person naturally and never became excited one way or another in her normal life. So her reaction to the trial and everything wasn't really that odd for her. Just very steady gal. One of them stated, quote, Her conduct since the murder has been just what anyone who knew her would expect, end quote. Another man named Dr. B.J. Handy who owned the cottage that Lizzie was expected to visit the week after the crime took place, denied any signs of insanity in Lizzie, stating that although hysteria was common in women, Lizzie never showed any signs of it. None of this is real. So now is this one, is this one that you're just trying to slip by us like that? Yeah, uh, it's gotta be. There's no way you, that was a real person. Is your middle name Shifty? His name was Benjamin Handy, but like the Fall River Tragedy, the contemporary source, mm-hmm. first lists him as Dr. B.J. Handy. D-B-A-G. <laughs> and I literally said to myself, there is no way this is real. <laughs> but, you just hee-hee-heed the yeah, entire time. I text, I'm pretty sure I texted you about it like when I came across it. Every, so, one, yeah, of, yeah. every one of these names, though. Is, They're all cartoon characters. Yeah. Dude, I love Fall River. It's, I want to go here so bad. Even that. Shouldn't it be River Falls? It really should. What does Fall River even mean? I, fall I River? about all i got (laughs) oh because the river because the water falls down i don't even know if they had a waterfall yeah (laughs) it's just no body of water by them the entire so the prosecution attempted to zero in on this point rather than search for a possible motive for the killing specifically they looked into the prevailing theory of the time that a women's menstruation lowered their resistance to criminal behaviors as an austrian criminal psychologist of the time stated quote Menstruation may bring women to the most terrible crimes. Various authors cite numerous examples of sensible women driven to do the most inconceivable things, in many cases, to murder. End quote. In many cases, (laughs) not once in a while, (laughs) to murder. (laughs) And it was true that Lizzie was menstruating at the time of the murders. Okay, that's the fun, that's the most 1800s, like, that's so funny. Oh, yeah. I mean, they probably, looked, how long in the investigation do you think it took until some investigator brought that up? It's like, oh, they hated bringing it up. Trust me, we'll get oh, to yeah. it later. <laughs> I yeah. get what happened. I honestly, she was she was menstruating, and both her her dad and her mother in law told her to calm down. Listen, <laughs> <laughs> you're being you yeah, overreacting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're take a chill pill. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they they were the first ones to say, "Calm your tits." <laughs> oh my goodness. But one of Jennings' associates belayed the point of the menstruation before the trial, finding that there was no evidence of Lizzie ever acting abnormally during her menstrual periods. But that didn't slow down the prosecution's efforts to put together a bulletproof case. District Attorney Hosea Knowlton was originally to be aided by Attorney General Albert Pillsbury, but the elderly man fell ill before the trial, so Knowlton was required to find a backup plan. To this end, he hired the district attorney of a neighboring county, who is a young man named William Moody, to help him out. Moody had a reputation as a great public prosecutor and also served in Congress after the trial. Later on, he was appointed as Secretary of the Navy and eventually to the Supreme Court by Teddy Roosevelt. Both sides had yeah, strong rosters. Wild tie-in. That's kind of nuts. This case kind of has a lot of those. It's a, yeah. lot, it's a star-studded legal team on both sides, this honestly. Wild. And Hosea Knowlton, for those of you that don't remember, he was the one that gave Lizzie, the, or was in charge of Lizzie's preliminary trial as well on the prosecution mm. side. 
After both legal teams had established themselves, Lizzie was brought to court in New Bedford, which was about 15 miles outside of Fall River, and officially pled not guilty during her arraignment. Both sides now needed to prepare for what they knew would be one of the most sensational trials in Massachusetts history. I mean, name another Massachusetts, like, historical case. This is the one. (laughs) This is probably the one. New Bedford was chosen as the location for the final trial of Lizzie Borden, despite pleas for the trial to be held in Fall River or in Taunton, because one was where the crime took place, the other was where Lizzie was currently being held. It's just easier for her. New Bedford, for its part, was formerly one of the richest cities per capita in the United States, thanks to its use as a whaling hub. Time out. She wanted it to be near her hometown? No, like people in Fall River wanted it to be there because they knew it would bring business, and it's like, that was where it happened. Yeah, that's typically how that goes. But but they almost never, the defendant never wants that. No, she... Because right. they would give a way worse jury. Her defense team wanted it to be in Tauntaun because yeah. then she wouldn't yep. have to travel far from the jail. The courthouse, despite being a beautiful building in New Bedford, was much too small for the crowds that everyone knew were going to gather when Lizzie Borden made her appearance. Nonetheless, additional tables were brought in for reporters, and so many wires ran out of the building to relay messages that it was said, quote, you could hang all the washings of all of Bristol County on them, end quote. I love that that's a comparison. Right. Not like... You, you could dry clothes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> reporters themselves began to flock into town from publications all over the country, like the New York Sun and the Boston Globe. One reporter for the New York World was actually a woman named Elizabeth Jordan, who was from Milwaukee originally, which isn't really important to the story, but it's cool because she's from Wisconsin. (laughs) Shout out. The trial officially began on June 5th, 1893. On the first day, no spectators were allowed inside, but for many waiting outside, this was the first time that they had ever seen Lizzie Borden in person. Reporters made note of how much different she looked than the descriptions of her made her seem in the papers. In effect, they noted how plain she looked. Oh, God. They also noted that she carried herself as a refined lady should. And none of this press really got to Lizzie in any sort of way. They all reported that she remained in control of herself, behaving in a calm, modest, and quiet manner. And in response to the publication's characterizations of her, Lizzie herself responded bluntly by saying, quote, I never did reveal my feelings, and I cannot change my nature now. I have tried hard to be brave and womanly through it all. I know I am innocent, and I have made up my mind that no matter what comes to me, I will try to bear it bravely and make the best of it. End quote. Like, in the face of all this, she is being very, very, you have to say it, very brave. Like, really not breaking down, really not showing too much of emotion. And the media just keeps on hitting her with side shots. Of, she's kind of ugly, though. <laughs> they literally said that. They keep on the they're like, Her lower point. half of her body is a little heavy. It's like, guys... You do realize her parents just died, and she might have been the one that did it. <laughs> like, she's on trial to go to jail for the rest of her life, and they keep on saying, like, man, she's kind of she plump. <laughs> she very well could be sentenced to death. <laughs> like, <laughs> safe to say that's a lot to carry. No. <laughs> I hope she can bury that load. I hope she can bury the hatchet between her and the reporters. Wow. Oh. So without further ado, the proceedings finally began. In Massachusetts, capital cases were tried by a panel of three superior judges, and in Lizzie's trial, the three judges chosen had nearly a century of experience between them. Hmm. Much of the first day was delegated for jury selection. Due to the sensational nature of the case, both sides knew that it would be difficult to find an impartial jury within Fall River, so 150 men were chosen from other areas of the county, 
All but one were white men, with one African American among the possible jurors. Women weren't able to serve on juries until the mid 1900s, so there was no women possible. Interesting. At the end of their examinations, a 12 man panel was selected for the jury, consisting of a real estate owner as the foreman, along with six farmers, three mechanics, and two manufacturers. Without going any further, just out of curiosity, do you think, do you think the all men jury, and we know how this ends up, obviously, do you think that helped or hurt her? I think helped. I actually kind of think it helped her too. I think it absolutely helped. It had the opportunity to hurt her just because of the view of women and like, sure. Be, they could literally be diagnosed as hysterical at, at like, or that's like a way to call them insane pretty much. Right. So like, there's a lot of notions against women that could have hurt her in this case, but I do think it ended up helping her in the end. Oh yeah. Especially again with how she acted throughout the entire trial to basically counteract that hysterical mantra like, yeah. to be used against her then again there were no people on the jury who understood menstruation oh they didn't <laughs> want to either so. <laughs> they didn't want to they threw like, that out immediately right you're like <laughs> yeah judge can we throw that out on yeah. the on the basis of icky of gross <laughs> yeah for the duration of the trial, these 12 men were relegated to the nearby Parker House Hotel, where they were kept away from outside influences. So they were they stayed away from their families for the duration and kind of just talked amongst themselves. The next day, the crowds were thinner than the first at the courthouse, but people still waited hours to get into the courtroom. William Moody of the prosecution was the first to make a case. During his opening statements, he recounted the crime with brief descriptions of the victims and the accused. But his main focus was on the property disagreement that the Borden sisters had with their parents and the bad feelings that it left between the family. After this, Moody then shifted to the day of the crime itself, bringing focus to four facts of the case leading to the murders. First, John Morse's sudden visit. Second, the household food poisoning. Third, Lizzie's alleged drugstore visit to buy prussic acid. And fourth, Lizzie's visit to her friend Alice Russell to confide her fears of a possible poisoning within the Borden home. But the trial didn't take long to show that behind the mask of professionalism and proper legal proceedings, it was going to be a veritable house of horrors. Moody gave the court a timeline of Lizzie Borden's events and showed what the prosecution believed was the most likely murder weapon, which was a handleless hatchet that was found in the Borden basement. But that wasn't the most stunning display that he made in his opening statements. As he continued his opening, Moody grabbed a black bag and announced that the evidence inside would be essential to the trial. He opened the bag, revealing the skulls of Abby and Andrew Borden inside. This made Lizzie Borden faint. <laughs> Oh my god, what a psychopath. Yeah. I love it. That's, I love it. That's great TV. Oh, but man. like all of the reporters had to be like, yes, this is exactly this what is, we wanted. Like, did they not what's like the the process of submitting evidence? Like, didn't he have to submit that beforehand? Oh yeah. But like they didn't because they had plaster casts of it too. But he just like had it on hand. I they were like, "Oh, it'll be it'll be introduced, and the medical experts come up." And he's like, "Nope, I got it right, right here. here." Oh my god! Have you man. seen these? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Lizzie Borden fainted upon seeing the skulls of her parents. Understandably, yeah, you think? And it was kind of nope. The, she wouldn't have fainted unless she was guilty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But this is one of the few times that we'll see during the trial where Lizzie really shows any uncomfortability during the whole ordeal. The second day concluded with an engineer named Thomas Kieran testifying to the house's layout and took a field trip to the house with the jury for them to acclimate themselves better to the surroundings of the case. When the trial reassembled, the courtroom was crowded with a new gathering of women who wished to see Lizzie's plight, as would be a running theme throughout the entire trial. And the women were kind of on both sides of the coin. Some supported her, some thought, well, look at this wretched woman. So it's a very judgmental time period. <laughs> half, of them, half of them are like, bring the heads back out. Yeah. <laughs> they just have them, this is horrible, just hanging for the rest of the court. For everyone to see. Oh, yeah. there's, a, there's a point where they bring them out and they're like, the jaw was moving on its own while it was sitting there and it kind of looked like it was just talking. So everyone's just like, what is happening? The prosecution's doing ventriloquism. <laughs> That's the a, yeah. You know, they talk about how like uh, video games are making people more dull to violence. Yeah. So, Things back then were way more, like, violent. Oh, like, what the 100%. heck? Yeah. Everything was way more gruesome at the time. Period. Yeah. Like, there were still, like, public guillotinings in France until, like, the 70s. We're fine. Yeah, <laughs> we're fine with GTA. Yeah. So the same engineer from the day before was the first to take the stand on the third day, strangely revealing that he had conducted experiments in the Borden home, apparently without prompting from either legal team. (laughs) (laughs) Thomas Kieran had instructed a man who was supposedly his assistant to stand inside of a closet in the house to see if they could fit and not be seen, which he was able to confirm. He also had his assistant take position on the floor of the guest bedroom where Abby was found in order to see if they could see her while going up or down the stairs. You see that blood stain? Yeah, lay down. Right there. <laughs> you see the chalk outline yeah. in the cordoned off area? Go yeah. in there. So the evidence during this test concluded that you could see the body from one of the landings of the staircase if you were actively looking for it. So if you're looking to find a body, you can find a body. But if you're not, you can easily miss it. Next to take the stand was John Morse. He recounted his visit and the monotony of the day's proceedings from breakfast to the age of the family members. One lighthearted moment did occur when Morse miscalculated Lizzie's age, claiming that she was 33 when she was actually 32, to which Lizzie vehemently shook her head in disagreement. (laughs) Various witnesses followed, such as the carpenter John Shortsleeves, who all recounted their interactions with Andrew Borden to piece together a timeline of his movements. And yes, I am throwing these names in here on purpose because they're hilarious. All short sleeves. <laughs> there wasn't anything extremely out of the ordinary according to these testimonies about Andrew Borden's whereabouts on the morning of the murders, aside from a broken lock at one of the stores that he visited and Moody yelling at one of the witnesses until he was red in the face because the man was hearing impaired. <laughs> <laughs> Moody just has some weird demons in his skeleton like in his closet he's just this young upstart and like nolton asked him like do you want to take the lead on this case and he's like no i'll be the junior guy to your your lead man and then he just goes up and starts yelling at people on the stand (laughs) well it's just very funny wasn't his opening speech like two hours yeah like that's such a long time man all of their gotta wrap it up all their opening and closing speeches are like multiple hours long but yeah he yells at multiple people during this trial like there's people like this french woman from canada comes up and doesn't really speak english so he just starts or nolton just starts like yelling the questions at her in the hopes she'll understand the words yeah it's it's quite the uh the The american trait yeah exactly 
But next up to the stand was Bridget Sullivan. Sullivan hadn't lived in the Borden home since the inquest from, that we talked about last week, and her movements in the meantime were a bit of a mystery. So her testimony was one of the most anticipated of the entire trial. She spoke very quietly on the stand, having to be told to speak up multiple times, telling everyone about her household duties in the Borden home and stating that the cellar door and the side door had been locked tightly the night before the murders. She followed by recounting her movements step by step on the morning of August 4th, which we briefly covered last episode, but I'm going to go through again in detail just so we can recount everything. Started with breakfast and then cleanup of breakfast. Next, the men of the house left and Lizzie came downstairs for breakfast. Bridget left for 10 to 15 minutes to go outside and vomit, and she came back in to see Abby, Bordy, to see Abby Borden in the dining room. Abby then requested for Bridget to clean the windows, and so she went to the cellar to get a bucket and a brush to do the job. When she was stepping outside, Lizzie asked if she was going to go wash the windows, and then advised Bridget that she didn't need to lock the back door if she didn't want to, because Lizzie intended to go outside shortly after as well. Bridget then made several trips to the barn for water, like I think it was six or seven trips back and forth, making it increasingly hard for anyone to time an entry if they wanted to get in without her seeing. After finishing the windows outside, Bridget moved to the inside to clean the inside of the windows, which was when she heard Andrew Borden at the front door. She went to go let him inside, found the front door locked, swore, and then unlocked the door to admit Andrew Borden inside. Lizzie was heard laughing from the upstairs landing after hearing Bridget's cursing and came downstairs to greet her father as Bridget went to continue her work on the windows. Lizzie told Andrew that Abby had received a note and gone out. Andrew then went upstairs to his room, returned to the front sitting room of the house, and laid down for his nap. Wait, did, can you say that again? Lizzie got a note saying that Abby wasn't there? So she told Andrew that Abby had received a note from, from what she said. She said a boy reporter, or like a reporter boy or whatever, gave Abby a note saying that her friend was sick and Abby had left to go into town to see this friend. Mm. So that's why she wasn't there. Interesting. During this time, as Andrew went to go lay down for his nap... Do they have this note? No. Sus. Hmm. During Very this time, sus. Lizzie attempted to iron the handkerchiefs in the kitchen, but couldn't get the iron hot enough, so she asked, went and talked to Bridget and asked if Bridget intended to go out that afternoon and told her that if she did... She should lock all the doors since Abby was gone on a sick call and Lizzie herself may leave soon too. Lizzie then told Bridget of a dress fabric sale at a local store where Bridget should go if she does go out. But instead of making use of that sale, Bridget went upstairs to lie down since she was still feeling sick. She wasn't destined to get any rest, however, because shortly after she was called by Lizzie to announce that Andrew was dead. Bridget ran downstairs and saw Lizzie at the threshold of the side door to the house and asked Lizzie where she had been. Lizzie replied that she had been in the backyard and heard a groan, then told Bridget to go get Dr. Bowen. Bridget found he wasn't home, so when she got back, Lizzie sent her to go get Alice Russell, and when they were all at the house, someone asked where Abby was. Lizzie then said she thought that her stepmother may have returned home, so Bridget went with the neighbor to search the house, and that's when they found Abby dead as well. But another revelation came to light during her cross-examination. In late August of 1892, which was the month in which the murders took place, 
Bridget confided in the wife of private detective McHenry that she had intended to leave the Bridget home, that she intended to leave the Borden home on three multiple occasions due to the unpleasant atmosphere in the home. Despite this, Bridget stayed because she liked Mrs. Borden, and Mrs. Borden raised her wages and convinced her to stay. George Robinson continued by cross-examining her for the defense, asking her about a contradiction with her testimony. In earlier statements, Bridget had said that she couldn't be sure if she had locked the side door, but now she was saying that she had for sure. She also admitted that she might have missed a hypothetical intruder as she worked. Robinson then reminded the jury that Lizzie didn't have blood on her person, as was testified by Bridget, and Bridget confirmed that Lizzie's hair was in order. Doesn't seem like a big point, but it is important. Bridget Sullivan's day ended by confirming that Lizzie had changed from a blue dress to a what they called a pink wrapper in the afternoon on the day of the murders. That was the end of her testimony for that day. And overall, the first week of the trial was going very smoothly and was entirely fair by accounts of all of those who were in attendance. Aside from the showing of the heads, but... <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Were any of her clothing items available as evidence? Yes. All of them. And we'll, we'll talk about that later, too. Oh, okay. This note's got me hung up. Right, right. Something's not adding up about the note part. Like, who was this apparent person yeah, who, who handed the note? As yeah, well? it sounds like only Lizzie knows anything about this note. Yeah. And wouldn't she have known if Abby left or not? Right. Like it doesn't she just, make sense. She's just like telling people, oh yeah, Abby, Abby's gone. Abby's gone. Haven't seen her. Haven't seen her. Yeah, some guy with a note told some me. Some newsboy was- came. Yeah. <laughs> that that of all of it, that's the thing that's like, what are we even talking about? Fishy, that's- fishy, fishy. Yeah. The next day, witnesses were called to attest to Lizzie's demeanor and actions immediately after the crimes. Dr. Seabury Bowen was the first to be called. He reported his arrival at the scene and his examinations of the bodies, but when pressed about what dress Lizzie had on, his blue dress description differed from Bridget's, which was what the prosecution would eventually latch onto. But most importantly, the defense questioned Dr. Bowen about what medications, if any, he had given to Lizzie for her nerves after the crimes. Dr. Bowen admitted that he had initially given Lizzie bromocaffeine, which was used to help with headaches caused by exhaustion. Shortly, Which would later be used in Panera <laughs> caffeinated yeah, lemonade. And would kill even more people. Do you think people are going to listen to this in like four years and be like, what the hell what? is he talking about? <laughs> so he had given her an initial dose of bromo caffeine, and shortly after, he added a dose of eight milligrams of morphine, which he doubled the next day. Morphine finds its, uh, finds its way in just about every historical event. Dr. Bowen admitted that this dosage of morphine could affect memory and cause hallucinations. So, what could it have done to Lizzie after taking it for multiple days and being interrogated? Yeah. So, this is why people don't think it's that odd that her story changed little bits here and there. Right, like she was on the medication. She's all doped up. More witnesses followed after Dr. Bowen, who or asked about Lizzie's dress the day of the murder, with nobody really coming to a full consensus on which blue dress was the correct blue dress. But then, Alice Russell turned on Lizzie. During her testimony, she told the prosecution that Lizzie had burned a dress the Sunday following the murders. This was a startling new revelation for the defense to try and deal with, because they hadn't heard this yet. 
Alice also recounted how Lizzie told her of the potential family poisoning the day before the murders, during which Lizzie talked of a man who had a disgruntled conversation with Andrew about a property, which is what I kind of mentioned earlier. This wasn't really new information because other people had testified to this as well, and she had pretty much just talked about it in her initial investigation, but nobody was ever able to identify who this man was. After the crime had been committed, Alice stayed with Lizzie in the Borden home for a few days after the murders, and they had both made a nighttime visit to the basement with Lizzie on the day of the murders, in which they walked past Abby and Andrew's bloodstained clothing. They also reported that there was a bucket of blood-soaked rags in the cellar, which Lizzie was claiming was due to her menstruation. A bucket? I mean, yeah, they... I mean, some people, I mean, yeah. They don't have, like, normal tampons like today, so... Dude, shout out being a dude. That sucks. (laughs) (laughs) But all of this pretty much to say that Lizzie wasn't really perturbed by all the grisly sights in the home. After this, the focus returned to the burnt dress. Alice Russell claimed that she heard Emma ask Lizzie what she intended to do with the said dress, which Lizzie replied to by saying, quote, I'm going to burn this old thing up. It is covered in paint, end quote. Alice then said she left the room, but returned to tell Lizzie that she shouldn't let anyone see her do that. Mm. This was a big point for the prosecution, a potential for Lizzie destroying evidence. But Robinson controlled the damage for the defense, making Alice restate that Lizzie had not been found with blood anywhere on her the day of the crime. He also made it entirely clear that the police had searched the house by that point and they were on site when Lizzie burned the dress. But overall, this was a blow to the defense standing in the trial. That's a good recovery, though, for the defense. (laughs) Just to reiterate, everyone, there was no blood on said dress. It could have very well just been an old dress burning. And so, what a dumb thing to do, though. What is the stupid thing to do? (laughs) So, I sent you guys a video from Reddit like a week ago before we recorded the first episode. Yeah. Did you guys watch that video? I don't even know what video we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So there's a video that I sent you guys here. Actually, yeah, it might be worth it. I'm going to make you guys watch it real quick, and then we'll come back. Okay, so I made you guys watch the video. There's a video on Reddit that shows what the dress, where, or like how a woman would have to put on a dress in this time period. And it's time-lapse video. It's like over a minute and a half long that's sped up like... I don't know how fast, but it takes a long time to put on the attire of this time period. So that's like one of the testimony too, with where they say there was no blood found on Lizzie mm-hmm. and like her hair was fine. It's because you have to put on like a bunch of layers and then you have to redo your hair all while washing all of the blood off your body itself and then hiding that clothing so that nobody finds it in the interim. I got a quick interjection. What's the difference between a kid on a bike with a suit versus a kid on a tricycle in play clothes? Attire. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay, let's get back to it. <laughs> okay, yeah. I was ready for some hammer to yeah. drop. <laughs> but all that to say, it's just, it would have been difficult for Lizzie to have to change outfits multiple times after, because she would have had to change after the initial one because she went out back and Lizzie or uh, Bridget would have seen her in between the time that her father came back and he was killed. And then she would have had to change again after murdering Andrew before she called Bridget down. So... It's just a lot of effort she would have had to put in 
to not only change her clothing, but also hide it and clean herself off in a house that has only one place of running water, which is a toilet in the cellar. And plus, like she'd be exhausted from killing two people multiple times swinging a hatchet. Right. So that's just one thing to keep in mind. I would say, based on the video that you showed us, it, you could, in theory, just change your outer layer. Not that that, like, fixes all the other mm-hmm. issues that would make the effort, but, like, she didn't have to theoretically change all of her clothes. I would argue that there's enough tough. blood that it would soak through at least into a couple layers of clothing. But you're right. You, she wouldn't have to change the entire outfit, I guess. Mm-hmm. Think either way, we're still talking like, quite some time. Maybe the hatchet she had had a really long handle. So she could keep she her, just <laughs> stay keep really her far away. She put it on like a long stick and she's just like, it's like those things for yeah. cutting branches and yeah. tall yeah. trees. That's <laughs> like the, the chainsaw on the end of like a 30 yeah. foot stick. Yeah. That's funny. Could but, you stay still for a second? <laughs> but just imagine it this way imagine that you're outside playing, you get covered in mud. And think about how long that's going to take you to clean off if you have a running water shower. Versus her trying to clean that all off in a water tub in the middle of the house. You know what I mean? And then where where are all the bloodstained... If that's true, then there's going to be a a bunch of bloodstained rags that she used to wipe herself down with, which you could say are the menstrual towels in the basement, but those are never tested, so we don't know. Why weren't they tested? Because menstruation. Because gross, Mark. Because ick. Well, how much do we want to find out these murders? Okay, you (laughs) got to get your hands dirty. They can't really do anything with it at that point. Blood is is blood. (laughs) This is the 1890s. So to them, it didn't really do them any good. Like, it's just bloody cloth. Like, they can't test to see where it came from. Ew, blood. Gross. (laughs) But after this, testimony continued with a lot less excitement. But the prosecution brought witnesses up who confirmed that the cellar door was locked, the front door was locked, and that Lizzie Borden had not been crying when she was, in- when she was initially questioned. They also restated Lizzie's story of being in the barn at the time of the murders, and that her testimony had cleared Morse and Bridget Sullivan of suspicion. And of course, Lizzie's dislike of Abby was a constant point of contention. One policeman named Fleet was one of the... One policeman named Fleet was claimed Oh my god. One policeman <laughs> One policeman named Fleet claimed to be the one who found the handleless hatchet in the basement and said he found it and was covered in ashes. Fleet also admitted to searching the upstairs closet on Saturday, two days after the murders, but he said he didn't find a blood stained dress or a paint stained dress. But this contradicted his testimony at the inquest when he said that the dresses were covered by cloth and he didn't look that close. Even more damaging to his testimony was when another officer claimed to have been in the room at the same time, having been the, the one who handed the dresses to Fleet for him to examine in the light. This officer claimed to have not seen a blue dress, despite examining a majority of the dresses, making it nearly impossible that he was there since Lizzie and Emma owned ten blue dresses okay wow loves blue so i mean they said i think they said they had like 18 to 20 dresses half of them are blue how do you not find a blue dress when you're examining the clothing that's very it just doesn't make sense yeah and the police are kind of contradicting themselves and for this part of the trial many reporters attested to the fact that some of the offers officers made statements in such a matter-of-fact tone that it seemed like they had been rehearsed Mm, so you think it goes all the way up to the top and like one guy was giving all of these very well thought out details without skipping a beat. So they're all like, how does he have this down so well? Right. Unless he's like rehearsing a statement. 
which maybe he just wrote it down and was doing it that way. But it was just odd that all of the officers kind of had the same temperament about it. Maybe they were paid off. Right. I mean, they have a fort. Lizzie at the time has a fortune. So. I don't know. They were all at a party the day of, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's just, he's just the hammered looking at these <laughs> yeah. dresses. What color is that? <laughs> he's still mad at his partner Turns for out losing he's the softball game. He's the one colorblind officer. <laughs> <laughs> the guy doing the inspection. Ah, some I mud on this one. Some blood. mud. <laughs> yeah. I didn't see a blue dress. They were all gray or black. <laughs> when cross-examined about the hatchet head, the fleet story began to change. He added officers to the story who hadn't been there before and changed where the ash was covering the potential murder weapon. A later officer testified that he saw Dr. Bowen burn a slip of paper in the stove, possibly in the shape of a hatchet handle, insinuating that the freshly broken handle was burned to get rid of potential evidence. But Robinson later contested that point, asking how it would be possible that a paper wrapped around a wooden handle would survive a fire while the handle burned. Yeah, that doesn't make too much sense. No. But this is also kind of related to the note, because one of the officers said he saw, he thought that he saw Dr. Bowen reading a note, asked him what it was, and he said, nothing, it's from my daughter. But then when the officer glanced at it, he said he saw the name Emma written on it. Mm -hmm. But there was no verifying way to check this, because he threw it in the fire. (laughs) Right, it's all hearsay. Yeah. But that's the closest we really get to a physical representation of any note. See Barry Bowen, you say. It's odd, but it's also like both sides use this argument for their side and neither of them made a good case with it. So it's like, okay. They're both like, there's something here. Yeah. But we just don't know what. George Robinson was like, what a funny fire that would be if it just burned the hatchet handle and not the paper. (laughs) (laughs) That's a fire with a sense of humor. Moreover, two officers had different testimony about how the hatchet head had been wrapped and delivered to the police station, which is a minor detail, but the stories continue to diverge. Still, another officer claimed that he had actually seen the handle in the box when the head was initially found. So overall, it was kind of just a mess of a situation for the prosecution when they intended to use this as a main point for their argument. Yeah, the police officers do not do them any help. That's for sure. But they're almost so consistently off that that in and of itself is suspicious right and it's not in big ways either like one guy said oh it was wrapped in brown paper and i took it there and another guy said no i wrapped it in a newspaper it's like that's such a minor detail but it's Mm -hmm. like why can you guys not get the story straight here it's a simple thing and you would know like on a day where you you went into a house with them you just your senses are heightened you're just paying attention more like, if, if, if you were a cop, put yourself in the shoes, and then you walked into a house, and it was a crime scene, okay, whatever, and someone hands you a hatchet, you wouldn't know if it was in a paper bag or in a newspaper. You just would know that. Yeah. Right. So, that's why it's odd. Mm. So like, but yeah, like, to that point, for people who can't remember, like, what the dress Lizzie Borden had on was specifically like, like, Bridget Sullivan or Dr. Bowen, like, I can understand that. You've got a lot of other stuff that you're dealing with, so focusing on, like, her attire isn't the biggest no. thing you're concerned about. But any, like, any issues in remembering things prior to the murder discovery, I can understand. Because you just don't pay attention enough. Yeah. I often can't even tell you what I wore the day before. Exactly. So I'm not worried about that. It's definitely the forgetting of things after post seeing like a crime scene like this. Mm-hmm. I just feel like you would start to be like, oh, paying attention. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just kind of weird. 
But the handleless hatchet was the main focus because that box of axes and hatchets that they had sent off for testing, one of them was supposedly had blood on the handle, didn't have blood on the handle. So like none of them and none of them fit the wounds. Mm -hmm. So they pretty much excluded all those and focused on this one. And that would have been dumb anyway. I I murdered someone with this hatchet. I'll put it back in the box where I got it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But the, the handleless one was the one that they focused on. One, because it fit the wounds better. And two, because it looked like the handle was freshly broken. So that was why it was odd. After this, the investigation moved on to their next point of emphasis, which was that an officer who went up to the hayloft in the barn, where Lizzie claimed to have been when she rested to eat pears the morning of the murders, said that the hayloft was completely undisturbed and excessively hot. He said the dust was so thick up there that he could leave a handprint in it. If this was true, how could Lizzie have been up there, and why would she stand to remain up there for nearly 20 minutes with the excessive heat just sitting there eating pears? It was a hell of a pear. And this was like a super hot year, and yeah. like the following year was also hot. However, later testimony would directly go against this statement, with more than three people claiming to have been up in the hayloft on the morning of the murders before the officer claimed to have gone up there, proving that there was no way it was undisturbed as the officer had stated. But the biggest blow for the prosecution came when the judges ruled that Lizzie's inquest testimony could not be inserted into evidence. They asserted that due to the circumstances around the questioning, she had essentially been in custody despite not being formally accused of the crime yet. Although her act of being questioned was voluntary, the pressure that Knowlton applied was enough that the answers seemed to be coerced. When it was announced that Lizzie's inquest wouldn't be admitted, she broke down crying. Because in everyone's eyes, it was completely understandable. She had been dealt nothing but harsh words up to this point, so one advantageous break in the trial finally brought the tension that she had to the forefront. Mm -hmm. But this was a huge loss for the prosecution, because that was the main thing that got them through the preliminary trial. But all all three of the judges looked at it and said... I don't, if this isn't being in custody, I don't know what is, pretty much. And they just said, this, even if it wasn't an involuntary telling of things, the way that she was questioned and the pressure applied, mm-hmm. it wasn't fair to her, kind of a thing. Oh, Especially right. when her defense wasn't able to be there with her at the time. Right, yeah, it has every reason to be. Like They've definitely made like the right decision on that one. Real quick, can we go back? So, it's a handleless hatchet yes so the handle was broken like right at the base of the metal where it connected got it okay like by so the eye loop or whatever, or the eye hole of the hatchet head so like the murder weapon was broken before the murder or it was broken in the process of the murder one they don't know if it is the weapon if it is the weapon if right. it is the weapon they think it was broken after got it but there's no way to really tell like right. when it was broken. So I'm just thinking like they, a handleless hatchet, that's like impossible to Yeah, right. It'd be a much harder murder to commit. Right. Did you have something? Um I kinda did. I'm forgetting now. Oh. I just don't know how you could clean just having used hatches myself, I don't know how you could possibly clean it well enough to have no right. dried in residue that in there and that was one of the points of emphasis for the defense it's like you have no you literally have no physical evidence that this was used as a weapon in any of these weapons like any of these potential weapons they really should have on the day of to check her fingernails really closely but Mm. i don't know if they did 
So after this blow to the prosecution of not being able to admit her inquest testimony into evidence, the prosecution moved on to the most outwardly evocative part of the trial, the medical examiners. Once again, Dr. Dolan made his time on the stand very memorable. And if you're forgetting, he is the one who admitted in the preliminary trial that he had cut off the heads of the Bordens without, most likely without telling the family that he had done so. Yeah, cut off their heads, tell no one. After testifying that the deaths took place around an hour and a half apart, with Abby dying first and Andrew second, he described the state of the bodies when he found them. He said the wounds on the head had been so numerous as to render Andrew unrecognizable, and Abby was found face down in a pool of her own blood. After his initial findings, he had then cut out the deceased's stomachs, which he sent out, to, sent out with the Borden milk for testing. And this was helpful, because the level of digestion in the stomachs was important for establishing a timeline of the deaths. A week after the murders was when he cut off and cleaned the heads of the Bordens, which his son later claimed was done in a lobster pot in the family home. <laughs> Who says they didn't have work at home back then? I was about to say, yeah. I mean, it's a, it was a whole family affair. It's like, honey, have you seen the soup pot? Not once no, again, I'm using it. Once again, the things they did... Even just that, and that's only like I don't know what 130 years ago, but it the, the things they did back then it's just nutty, it's insane. Just yeah. opening up the family soup pot, and there's two heads, yeah. But this is like the case where at like um George Carlin, Dan Carlin, yeah, not George Carlin, Dan, Dan Carlin, uh, in one of his uh painfotainment episodes where he talks about public executions on hardcore history, he talks about like how public standard for what was considered grisly was just different then mm -hmm. because like they had public executions and they had just gone through like the civil war so it's just like the public standard for what is too much was so much different than what we have now where like we we see it on movies but we don't see it in person you know right. it's, it's different but i think that's kind of like what, what this trial really emphasizes yeah <laughs> i just think it's good too because it People are actually more sensitive to death than I think. Oh yeah. Then mm -hmm. if you see it often, I, I, that's desensitizing and like brutally. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. After he had cleaned the skulls in a lobster pot, apparently in the family home, Doctor Dolan made plaster casts of the heads to show the wound positions, showing that Andrew had suffered ten wounds and Abby eighteen. This testimony revealed that the murder weapon could not have been any longer than three and a half inches from tip to tip, narrowing the potential weapon considerably. He also confirmed, along with other medical experts, that the wounds could have been inflicted by a woman of average strength, which the prosecution relied on and the defense constantly attempted to avert the jury from. The experts testified that it was possible for someone to have avoided being spattered by blood during the commission of the crimes, as blood spatter is an inexact science, but they all agreed that it was much more likely than not that they would have had a considerable amount of blood on them, especially considering that most of them thought that whoever had killed Abby Borden knocked her down and then straddled the body when they committed the rest of the blows, Ooh. which... I don't know how you're avoiding getting covered in blood in that circumstance. Yeah, you're in the splash zone, baby. And like, what, what a way to say it. <laughs> you're in the splash oh zone. Oh my god! Welcome to Splash Mountain. Yeah, it's just ew. And I, I kind of looked into it a little bit about like, isn't blood spatter like a forensic thing nowadays? Like that we can use. And I guess it really isn't exact. Like it's very circumstantial, and like it could happen in any number of ways. So it's not relied upon mm -hmm. if they have stronger evidence. And as wild as it is to say, like 
blood consistency varies probably based on diet and hydration. Oh, oh yeah. Things. So probably isn't consistent that way too. And that was one of the things that they, the defense used to like try and narrow the gap as much as possible for there to have been like, because basically the prosecution relied on a large gap of time so that they would say if there was someone in the house as an intruder, it, they would have so much harder of a time if they had to stay there for this long of a period. So the defense tried to narrow that time as much as possible. Say like they didn't have to wait that long. They just had to hide for a little bit kind of a thing. And so they questioned Dr. Dolan, like, how did you figure out the time of deaths? And like, even though it was already established, like scientifically, that it was probably an hour and a half to two hours, uh, Melvin Adams did such a good job that the jury pretty much was like, I'm questioning the fact that this was like scientifically proven now. Yeah. So, because he asked, like, how'd you check it? Oh, temperature of the bodies, the blood coagulation. And even Dr. Dolan admitted after a while, he's like, well, the blood coagulation doesn't really matter after like 15 minutes. So I can't even tell using that for Abby Borden. It's like, yeah. So they did a good job, like, really poking holes in the arguments. One of the other medical professionals, whose name was Professor Edward Wood of Harvard Medical School, discussed many of the same points, but focused on the absorption rates of blood into the carpeting. To find out the rates, he decided that he was going to cut the artery of a dog's leg to see how fast it absorbed into the carpeting. Well, this is my least favorite person of history. That's so <laughs> fucked up. It doesn't say whether he killed the dog, it just says that he cut an artery on the dog's leg. Either way, not nice. But aside from this ghoulish experiment, Wood also provided testimony that he had examined the handle of one hatchet believed to have blood and hair on it and found that it wasn't blood and that the hair likely belonged to an animal. After examining Lizzie Borden's clothing, which was sent to him, he also found no blood on most of it, only finding an extremely small spot of blood measuring, in his words, 3243rd of an inch. So number one over 3,243. That's how small it was. But he had no explanation as to where this could have come from. But most of them didn't really say anything because they're like, ah, yeah, she was menstruating. So yeah. <laughs> probably that. So no follow-up questions. Case closed. Like, <laughs> she could have cut herself. and It's, it, like, it's literally a, the tip of a pin. That's how big it yeah, was. I don't even know how he found this. She could have picked yeah. a zit. We don't yeah, know. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, to this point, neither side of the argument wanted to discuss Lizzie's menstruation because it was kind of it kind of just made him feel uncomfortable. So the blood-soaked rags in the basement, as well as the literal pin spot of blood, were moved on from. <laughs> of the medical professional's testimony, one of the reporters said, "Quote: Witness after wis- witness after witness goes over the same story, describes that with which the jury are nauseatingly familiar, proving again and again the facts about which there is no dispute." that the Bordens are dead, that they were brutally murdered, that there was blood all over the place, that they, had been, that they had eaten a mild and moderate breakfast, all of which was found in their several intestinal parts, some digested and some not. That is all. End quote. So very gross day. Yes. <laughs> few days. But that was before Dr. Frank Draper brought out the skulls again. Hey. Initially, he did use the plaster casts to show where the damage was done with the skulls. But eventually, Knowlton requested that they bring out the real skulls. Lizzie, for her part, was thankfully allowed to leave the room during this part of the trial, because yeah. Draper made a point to go around the room showing everyone on the actual skulls of the victims where the hatchet head could have entered. 
It was said that he almost gleefully walked the skull around the room with the hatchet head stuck into it, showing it to all in attendance. This dude is loving this. No, <laughs> this is his time to shine, and yeah, he's making the most that's of That's right. In some ways, this was helpful, as it showed that the broken-handled hatchet was a decent fit for the wounds. But thankfully, that was the extent of his exhibition. That's bull. Any of the hatches probably would have fit fine. I mean, if if they were struck, like... 30 times or whatever not right. actually but dude come on well and how do you know how different are hatchets yeah and how do you know that he didn't hit the like whoever did it hit the same spot exactly opening twice it up and yeah expanded it like yeah. you don't know any of that like mm. and even the robinson i believe made a point saying that handle like that hatchet it's circulated widely right like you could get one of those pretty i'm so confident this is not the real hatchet yeah of, mm-hmm. of all yeah there's no way After this ghoulish examination, the prosecution started to lose ground. Robinson was the star man for the defense team, eventually refusing to change his pants because he wore them on the day that their luck was at a high point. Hey, I respect that. The defense retorted against the blood and paint-stained dress arguments. In their opinion, the police had more than enough access to the house and everything therein to find a dress if it had been there. Even the prosecution's officer witnesses attested to how unrestrained their search had been. In essence, Robinson said if they hadn't found a dress covered in blood, they were basically asserting that Lizzie must as, must as well have committed the crime in the nude. Robinson also called out the Fall River Police Department for arresting Lizzie due to public pressure for an arrest, rather than any evidence against her. They got the testimony of Eli Bentz, who was that guy from the pharmacy, They got his testimony excluded from the trial on the grounds that it didn't prove forethought of the murders. In the defense's words, attempts to buy prussic acid didn't prove any intention to use it for harm. It was, at best, circumstantial evidence, as were almost all of the prosecution's arguments. But basically, the prosecution wanted to insert this to try and influence, in in Robinson's words, he believed the prosecution wanted to use this argument to sway the the jury's opinion mm. of Lizzie Borden in like a negative light. And it didn't really have any bearing on the murders themselves because they weren't poisoned. But the prosecution said, well, if she cut, she couldn't get the poison. So she resorted to whatever method she had to, to kill her parents, which they would have said is hearsay or something. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, it's all circumstantial. As for the note, which Lizzie said, Abby received Knowlton claimed this was a fabrication to pull attention away from searching for Abby. But the judge refuted this note argument, asking why Lizzie would make up a story with physical evidence when she could just as easily have said that Abby had just gone out. He also argued that an intruder may have actually produced a note that they placed in the home for Lizzie to find in order to buy themselves time to commit the crime without anyone thinking Abby was around, and then subsequently burned the note when they had a moment alone. Interesting. Which I had never thought of before. Me either. And that's very interesting. That comes from the judge. Yeah. Too. It wasn't even the defense The team. judge did the murder? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this like 70-year-old guy. <laughs> but that is a good point. Like, if there was an intruder who had slipped into the house undetected, they could leave a note to buy themselves time and mm-hmm. say like, oh, well, if they think Abby's gone, no one's going to look for her, giving me more time to do what I want to do. Right. So it, it's a point that could be definitely made if, they're in, if you believe in the intruder argument. In addition, many of the men in the prosecution just couldn't understand Lizzie's movements on the morning of the murder. For example, how she had spent so much time in the barn sitting and eating pears or looking for fishing sinkers because they seemed to have a lack of understanding about the movements of a wealthy Victorian woman with nothing to do. In their words, 
why are you not doing something to busy yourself? You right. know, they just didn't understand how these women lived their lives. Emma provided more context for the burnt dress, testifying that she was the one who urged Lizzie to burn it because Emma needed a hanger for her new dress and the paint stained dress was doing nobody any good. A painter who had painted the Borden home in May of 1892 also testified that Lizzie had overseen his work when he painted the house, testing the paint on the house itself, with a dressmaker also confirming that she had seen Lizzie's dress with paint on it. A local man who worked as a sentinel guarding the door for Officer Allen, who was the first officer on the scene, admitted that he had locked the door to the cellar when he got there, which introduced a gap in the door locks for the intruder story. So all of this stuff is starting to turn in the defense's favor now. Yeah, you can definitely see the uh, degradation of the, or the decimation, I guess, of the prosecution's case. George Robinson relied on the fact that people who knew Andrew had not recalled seeing him on the street that morning, despite the fact that he was a very well-known quantity in town. This, he said, explains why an intruder may have gone unnoticed leaving the Borden home. Just basically, you can't see everything all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And by the end, Knowlton was seemingly ignoring possible points to support his cause. Instead of using the rationale that Lizzie killed Abby out of malice and her father because she wanted the inheritance, he stated that she simply did it because if she killed one, she had to kill the other. Another point he passed was that if Lizzie would have killed Abby second instead of first, the inheritance would have been split between the sisters and Abby's family. But for whatever reason, he didn't latch onto that point. And it kind of seemed as though he had either realized his case was doomed or he had no qualms about Lizzie going free. Which I didn't even think about that. Like, if Andrew is found to be killed first, then technically the inheritance goes to Abby and the girls. So if she dies second, then her family, Abby's family, gets some of it too. I mean, I never would have thought about that. I didn't either. But that would have been a good point for the prosecution to say she thought this out, she calculated that. Yeah, I mean, that would definitely give a lot more credence to why she would do it in that order, allegedly. To conclude the trial, one of the judges humanized Lizzie as an ordinary woman in an, ex- in an extraordinary circumstance. She was a real person with a good character, a good education, and a normal way of life. He disavowed her negative comments against her stepmother as the intense expressions of a young woman, not the words of a calculating murderer. He implored the jury to remember their duty and that if there was a reasonable doubt in their minds, they should not burden their conscience by sentencing a person who may be innocent. But if they believe that the evidence was sufficient to prove guilt, they must not let a murderer walk. With those words, it was time for the jury to render their verdict. After an hour and a half, they returned to the courtroom. Before the judge could even get his question fully out, the jury declared Lizzie Borden not guilty. At this point, the court erupted into a cheer, and Lizzie Borden broke down and began to sob. And on Tuesday, June 20th, 1893, at 4.38 p.m., the court adjourned, and Lizzie Borden took turns shaking the hands of the men who allowed her to live. After the fact, it was revealed that the jury was already unanimous before discussing the evidence in depth, and simply took an extra half hour as a courtesy to the district attorney. Wow. So they really were very set on the fact that the prosecution's case was just literally nothing. Yep. And I mean, looking at it objectively from just a legal standing, like the defense's side was so much better at proving their side than the prosecution. There was no physical evidence. Mm -hmm. There was 
literally only circumstantial evidence. They didn't have a murder weapon. They had no witnesses putting her at the scene when the murders were taking place. They, she was just at the house. But then again, Bridget Sullivan was there, and people were like, well, if Lizzie could have been there, then Bridget Sullivan could have also just done it because right. she's a shifty Irish woman. Right, right, <laughs> so, right. But that is the extent of the trial case. So at this point, I'm going to let you guys introduce any questions or comments that you have for me. I mean, honestly, the 180 of my opinion, I would say. I mean, it's definitely, definitely 100% turned around. I mean, when you think about who could have done it after all this, I think it truly had to be like an intruder, like someone else that didn't have, like the fact that there's no blood on anything that Lizzie has is pretty, pretty huge, in my opinion. And like, there was. Like, we're talking about. 10 and 18 wax to the head like that's so much blood well and there's the quentin tarantino movie there's blood all over the carpet there's blood all over the walls right like but my i talked to my coworker about this because i was like that i i have no idea like there's literally no way for her to have done it and there's no way for anyone else to have done it right but he's like and i was like because if they didn't find a they didn't find a bloodstained dress. They didn't find any evidence like of clothing that she would have worn like or cleaned up. And he's like, oh, what if there's a trap door in the house? I'm like, I feel like somebody would have reported that by now. Yeah. Because <laughs> like, there's people that use it as a bed and breakfast now. Right. So. The way that house has been turned over at this point. But that was something that like people were saying, too, in the rumor mills. It's just like, well, maybe she hid it somewhere. She knows the house well. It's like, yeah, but the police literally searched it from top to bottom with yeah. no restriction. Right. So, Yeah. Mark? If the murders were heavily premeditated, and this is going to assume that Lizzie's a fairly intelligent person then. She did. She was like wealthy enough to have good education and okay. stuff. So. so if we think she had a fairly high IQ and the murders were premeditated, it's theoretically possible she had... All these things pre-planned, including the change of clothes, where she was going to go with the clothes she currently had on, where she was going to go with the murder weapon, how she was going to approach, um, what's her name, the servant? Bridget. Bridget. Bridget, after, like, the timeline on that, and since Bridget at that point was sleeping, yes, when she, when she called her or whatever mm-hmm. at the end. She was laying down. Yeah, yeah. laying down. In theory, then, she had the time she needed to get things. We don't have a really good timeline on how much time went on there, but to theoretically not call her until she had things kind of how she Mm -hmm. wanted them. Now, it's a stretch because I feel like her emotions kind of, it's iffy. Based on, like, when she cries, when she was emotionless, all these things. It's, It's just tough to say, but if you think she was smart enough and the murders were heavily premeditated, then maybe she was smart enough to pull this off. Yeah, but the thing with the emotion part of it too is like, there's no way for her to win in that case. Like, if she's calm, then people say, "I can't believe she's not emotional about this." But if she's like hysterical about it, then they're gonna say that she's insane. Yeah. So there's like, there's really no way for her to win that argument. So she might as well just act like a lady should in this scenario. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Keep her cool. Yeah. Did you guys? Have you ever seen the, it's like a really small interview where a guy's at an apartment complex and a murder, uh, a murder happened to his neighbor or whatever, but he was actually the murderer. 
and they were interviewing. Yeah, and, and like he realized. Yeah, and, yeah. And they're like, yeah. So what do you think about the body they just found in the garbage? Mm-hmm. Your, and he goes, body? What body? And then she's like, yeah, they found a body. They don't know if it's the woman yet who was who's missing. And, he, and he's like, uh, I need to sit down. And it turns <laughs> out he was the guy who yep. murdered her. And so. It's just interesting to see how people's emotions are right, regarding yeah. these types of things. And that's the thing, too. It's like you can't tell someone how to... You don't know how anyone's going to grieve in a certain scenario. It's, yeah, like, you don't everyone, on their head. Everyone grieves differently. Like some people just emotionally shut down and they don't show any emotion. And other shock. Pe- yeah. Other people get crazy hysterical. Like you can't judge someone based on how they react yeah. to something like no, that. No, I agree. So it's things like that that like... But at the time period, they accounted for that way differently than we do now, obviously. Mm-hmm. So it's like a lot of stuff like that where we just will never really know because we have no way of knowing. But right. when I went into the, well, I'll let you continue. Like, do you, have, just, an, do you have an opinion on like who you think did it now? My, my opinion is that it was probably still Lizzie, but I am open to the idea that it maybe wasn't. I, I guess my thing would be, I don't hear enough to like sentence her to death over it i yeah. just don't and that's that's how she yeah. won the trial like there yeah. just wasn't enough to link her and, to and, it. and i would have ended it by saying and i think they pretty much did this that i i have no reason to think she didn't do it but i don't mm-hmm. have enough to kill the person over it so you probably have to it's probably a wash which is what kind of happened yeah so it sounds like it was a pretty good trial it seems like it, there w- it wasn't anyone cool it's the only the only thing i'll say is they got the worst police force in the in the area. Yeah. Like they, they were they were all at the, the freaking fair. I, yeah, <laughs> I, it's unbelievable how much their stories don't align. And these are supposed to be like the people of justice, and they're just throwing stuff at the wall. But like, here, here's an argument I will give against that though, is because police forces as a whole weren't that like they haven't been around that long at this time. Mm-hmm. Like police forces have maybe been around for 30 years at this point, like organized police forces, because one of the first ones that really had a huge investigation was when Jack the Ripper came around. Like Mm. that was really early for police forces. So I do give the police force here credit because they did do a lot of very good things like cordon off the house so that everyone could investigate it that way. It's just like they didn't have enough experience with this type of trial and this type of case. Mm-hmm. I think there was. I get what you're saying there. I just don't get why they were borderline seemingly making. Yeah, that part's up. That part's almost weird. is one of two things. Either they knew it was a lie and they uh, that was on purpose, or they just like, I want to be involved. This case yeah. is sick. Yeah, I was there. I touched the murder weapon, <laughs> and that's where that's where I kind of get where <laughs> I am the murderer. <laughs> yeah. That's where I kind of get where Robinson's coming from when he says like they just arrested her because they needed someone to they needed a arrest because yeah. like the public was getting there. It was unrest in the public view because nobody had been arrested after a week of no like of this brutal murder in the middle right. of the day. So they just wanted to see someone go down for it. Did Bridget mm. not get? looked at more closely because they thought her alibis were so strong it's pretty much because like lizzie vouched for her so strongly and her story never changed yeah aside from like that little point of like saying oh i might have locked the door i didn't lock the door could bridget nah, i just can't remember this timeline could bridget have theoretically done the murders before she went up to bed or was lizzie already in the house at that point lizzie was outside so it could have happened yes interesting it definitely could have um but the only thing with i just don't know if she could have done like here's what where there was rumors that like bridget and abby had done it in conjunction with one another and that i can that theory i believe more than just lizzie doing it or just bridget doing it because for abby 
if Bridget was outside and had been seen by neighbors and talked to other people outside at the time, then Lizzie could have done the murder of Abby. And then while Lizzie was outside in the barn, Bridget had access to the inside of the house with nobody else there while Andrew is sleeping. Mm -hmm. So then she could have done that one. But then the argument comes in is like, what did Bridget get out of it? What did Lizzie get out of it? Like, why would they have done it? I mean, Lizzie gets the inheritance, but she's, she, and she splits it with her sister, but Bridget doesn't get anything. Like, Unless, you know, under the table. Right. right. So it's like, I, I don't know if that's really a good argument either. But then again, then Bridget's going to be like covered in blood when she has to go talk to Dr. Bowen. So it's like, because they established the time of death and like, Again, unless, especially if they were in it together, they could have taken the time to, but, like... But by the time the witnesses first got there, by the time Dr. Bowen got there, he was still, like, Andrew Borden's body was still expelling fresh blood. Like, for them to have changed clothes, cleaned up, done all of that, gotten rid of the murder weapon, it would have probably, in my opinion, it would have been too long for their, his body to still be expelling fresh blood because, I mean, Abby's body had already coagulated and stopped bleeding. Yeah, in most cases, I would totally agree with you. And I think that's the good point. I, I guess that that's what I'm saying. It would only work if it was just so heavily premeditated. Exactly. I, I mm-hmm. mean, like, I'm talking to a T. The only other thing I can think of is that it was literally, like, the brutality of the crime. It just had to have been someone who was, like, psychotic or a psychopath. Yeah. And yeah. they, the only thing that they just, they got, A, extremely lucky. And B, just were calculated just enough in a psychopathic way that they knew, like, I can't get caught for this if I do certain things. Right. It's, it is like a serial killer. Yeah. And, and I'm not ruling that out. But why wasn't there any blood trails to any of the exits in the house? Is it, yeah. Exactly. Like, this crime is it, mind, it's mind blowing. Why weren't there any blood trails to any other parts of the house? Right. And that's the thing with, like, if Lizzie did it naked, like, she would have had bloody footprints or something, Mm -hmm. unless they clean those up, but then how are you going to clean that up efficiently enough to not even leave a trace, you know? And then, like, also, the fact that it happened, A, while John Morse was in town, adding another person that could be suspected if you wanted to cover yourself up, and B, when the police force is, like, out of town, on the day of that event mm-hmm. last it, thing it's just so convenient bridget clearly was very sick people with like the vomiting and stuff and how she was also probably treated i mean she was being forced to work while she was just like throwing up she must have been heavily irritable at oh, the time yeah. not saying anything for sure but if she had been mistreated long enough and now she's really sick on top of it and being told to do work anyway i don't know I could see, I could see her just being over the edge and being like I'm killing these that's people. That's the thing that snaps. Yeah, see, yeah. I I can see her killing Andrew. I just don't know how it feasibly works that she kills Abby. Right, because she actually liked Abby. Well, and like the timeline point. was wouldn't have worked. Like because she was outside washing the windows at that time when Abby was killed, and like people reported talking to her and seeing her out there. So it's just like I I don't know, man. This is why this yeah, is why the case has lasted, right. and this is why people say like it's impossible. One way or another, like there's no clear cut way that this works either way. So it's very interesting that that does seem like the murders, both murders happen like almost in like a sphere. Yeah. Because nothing else gets out and like just the blood aspect is so crazy. And that's why I said in the first episode, like this either leaves like Lizzie Borden or a ghost. 
It honestly, a ghost might be the best possible. It, yeah, it was. Just, it was an evil spirit, Conjuring Three. Yeah. Oh, four, I guess. So after her acquittal, Lizzie Borden surprisingly remained in Fall River. At first, it seemed like her life was going to return to a type of normalcy, but soon enough, the public opinion began to shift. The working classes never viewed Lizzie Borden in a good light, and they viewed her as someone who was afforded special treatment due to her station in life. Eventually, the elite class shut her out as well. Her church still allowed her to attend, but she would always sit alone. Despite this, she did move up in life and squared herself away in the hill district amongst the elite residential area. She coined her new home as Maplecroft, and she changed her name from Lizzie to Lisbeth. She adopted some Boston Terriers, and she took them with her on her drives in her black Packard, which she had outfitted with special seats for the puppies. Now that's just the dream. Fall River was her home until her death on June 1st, 1927, almost 30 years to the day that her trial had began. She was eventually buried in the Borden family plot, which, Liz, er, which Emma soon after joined her in. To this day, George Robinson's law firm keeps their trial notes locked up in their offices of the Lizzie Borden trial, with supposedly only one or two people having access to the key. Some speculate that those notes may contain information that could help reveal who the true culprit was in the killings, but considering there have been no answers in 130 years, it seems that the culprit will continue to go unnamed and unpunished. Despite her life being less noteworthy after the trial, Lizzie was never able to escape the crimes. Newspapers ran the story every year, insinuating that the murderer may still be among them in Fall River, and rumors swirled about the infamous Lizzie Borden. And of course, children began to sing the famous little rhyme that now accounts for the reason why most people know of her story, which reads, I'm going to have all of us read it together. Ready? Lizzie Lizzie Borden Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. And that is the end of not only the Lizzie Borden story, but the gems of history. Well, it's been a pleasure, man. man. It has been a lot of fun. I know you guys have done just what is the official number, Jacob? Podcast. I, uh, I mean, I don't number the like news story episodes that we've done, so it's probably somewhere close to like one forty-five or one fifty. Gosh, that's Oof. just amazing. That's Something just amazing. Like that. So yeah. you guys have put a lot of hard work into it, gathered a lot of followers and listeners who I know you guys appreciate too. But I would just say, well done on a podcast that's truly been outstanding and very interesting. I think you guys should be proud of the work you put in. Thanks, man. I yeah, appreciate that. I'm glad you were able that. to join us for this. Oh, yeah. It's so for fun to be final. back intermittently once in a while. Those were always so fun for me. And I was like really nervous because I was like, ah, Mark's got finals coming up. It's going to be two episodes. I was really nervous that you weren't going to be able to join us, but I'm so glad it worked out that you were. Honestly, oh, yeah. this was perfect. Like a perfect way to wrap it up. Also a redemption. Yeah. <laughs> and what a bop of a story to go oh out my on. Gosh, I mean, yeah. Holy yeah, cow. Yeah, I hope this last episode was like coherent enough because as right. I, I texted you guys and said like this is such a complicated trial and there's so many small points to hit that I wanted to make sure that I got like the big ones. So mm-hmm. Yeah. For, the, for those who can, and if you only listen to this one, th- I think this is one of the most epic one-two punches. You should listen to the first episode and this one because I just think it's very coherent. 
mm-hmm. like how we dis- like how it's it, discussed. It is truly just like a crazy enduring story. Yeah. And, I, and I understand why it's been talked about for mm-hmm. 130 years. So. Definitely. But yeah, thank it's you guys. impact, that's for sure. Thank yeah. you guys so much for all of the support over the years. I mean, we started this as a little joke hobby thing that we wanted to try out. And for like, I think we have almost half of the countries in the world that have at least listened to one of our episodes, mm-hmm. which is insane. Uh, our, our growth has been constantly going up as is seen by like the Spotify rap numbers and stuff, which is, it's super cool. And like, like I mentioned the other week, we got one message from someone who said we reinvigorated their love for history. So it's, it's really cool that we are able to have that kind of an impact on even one person. So thank you guys so much. Yeah. Thank you all a ton. I think Jacob said it perfectly. Yeah, like, having just even a little bit of an impact on someone's life life is crazy to think that the show did that. Yeah, and it's it's just, it's something really cool and something. I mean, I'll always appreciate. And thank you for being my co-host this whole time. I know, right back at you, brother. I know it's a, it was a commitment to do as much as we did. So I appreciate that you were mm-hmm. able to stick with me for it. And Mark. Thank you for all the time you put in when you were a part of this too. So. Yeah, dude, mm-hmm. I'm excited that the episodes really—they'll still live on. Like, oh yeah, on, on Spotify, be able to go back and listen. Yeah, and who knows? Maybe in five, ten years, we'll do a reunion episode. You never know. <laughs> that would be pretty great. That would be pretty <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, all the episodes are going to stay out there uh, for those of you that are on the Patreon. We will be shutting that down before the end of the year. I'm not sure exactly when, but one of these days it'll be shut down. Probably a a week or so after this episode comes out just so like people can listen to it on there if they want the ad free stuff or whatever but yeah thank you guys all for supporting us in every way possible uh evan i guess if you want to plug our social medias you can but i mean they're for one last time they're not going to be used after today See if i get them all right yep. well you can find our show continue the conversation with us at gems underscore history on x you can find jacob at jacob from wisco myself at whatevskis you can also find us on Instagram, Facebook. Um, <laughs> I had to mess it up. <laughs> Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, and any other social media. Just look up Gems of History Podcast, and we will be there. Yes, sir. Um, so for me personally, I might continue with podcasting at some point, probably next year. It's going to be a while. I'm going to take some time off. Mm-hmm. But yeah, keep an eye out. Uh if you want to follow me on my personal social medias, I don't really post on there because I'm logged out of them currently. But once I come back, I will be posting about it. And I, maybe I'll just post it in this feed for like the first episode or whatever so that if people who are still keeping up with this podcast or subscribe to it can see it. But yeah, just keep an eye on that. Maybe I'll, I'll pop up somewhere on your podcast feed mm-hmm. once again eventually. But yeah, thank you guys so much for listening throughout the years. We love you guys. Everyone out there, Continue to be kind to one another. Continue to take care of one another. Continue to help educate one another, honestly. Push people to pursue their passions. Do stuff like that. Just be nice. (laughs) So I guess that's what we got. And at the end of the day, everyone, stay polished.